and we have been focusing, it's all about faith, uh, and the sermon series that, that we've titled this is Talking to Jesus, uh, because we all need to talk to Jesus every day, all the time, every chance we get, whenever we can remember to, it's what we've got to do, and over the past few weeks, we've talked about, as we've gone through the Lord's Prayer, reverencing God, revering Him, glorifying Him, making Him bigger than our problems, submitting our will to His, and Last week, we, we started to open up the idea of God being our provider, going to him with our needs. And, and today, we're going to focus on how God also provides forgiveness for us. He provides a way out. Kind of really specifically, he provides debt forgiveness. How many of you here would love to have your loans forgiven? If you got some student debt in the house, yes, yes, amen to all my students here. I know you want that. Oh, you want some credit card forgiveness, right? No, you shouldn't have ran up that credit card. You got to deal with the consequences. But, I, but I, I'm an advocate for us to your debt forgiveness. Yeah, I'm a hypocrite. Um, but today, I, I want to I give you the title of my message. It's not a question like I like to do a lot of the times. It's simply this, stop keeping score. Um, I, I wanted to like somehow be all like picturesque and, and give you a big old giant scoreboard or something up here. I was like, it makes no sense. I just want to be gaudy and get something up there. So it's not, but stop keeping score. Um, do I have any, do I have any third children in the house? Like you're the third in the line of children. Do I have any third children here? Got one, got two. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So there's a few kindred spirits in the house because I'm a third child and I, I I'm, I probably shouldn't share this, but I'm going to share it anyway. Um, growing up, I was considered the spoiled one, okay? You would not have guessed that, I bet. Y'all said amen, I know. Um, I was the spoiled one, and what's funny is my brothers and my mother, for some reason, they always love to make sure that I'm constantly reminded every time I go and visit them. It's like without fail, somehow we're talking about we're talking about how blue the sky is or something totally unrelated. And they're like, oh, yeah, do you remember you were a spoiled, back, spoiled brat growing up? I'm like, oh, hey, glad to be reminded of that. And what I try to do to be the mature man of God that I know I am is, and I'm serious, I just like, don't feed it, don't feed it, don't argue with it because it just makes you look more guilty if you're the one arguing against it. So I don't argue. And it's just amazing how the insults keep coming. I'm like, all right, don't you see I'm not fighting with you? But, but they love to do it. And you know what? I, I think I'm being all godly because I keep my mouth shut. But let me, be, let me confess to you what I do. As soon as my wife and I get in the car on the way home, I was like, if only I would give in. I got a list of reasons that I could say, maybe I was spoiled, but let me show you what I did that you didn't do that we can talk about. And I mean, I get this exhaustive, extensive toilet paper roll of a list that I just so badly want to give, but I don't do it. But I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I'm, I'm being righteous, I'm being holy, but I'm not. Because in my heart, and certainly before my wife, I'm showing how much bitterness, how much anger, how much want to get back at them I have. And I just, I was thinking about that. And I was thinking, we do that all the time. I mean, how many, and th this is going to be a moment of honesty, so maybe don't raise your hands, but I'll tell you right now, my wife and I, 
we really are not getting tired. We love to get under each other's skins in such a godly way. We love to quote, and I'm going to use it seriously at the end, but uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, uh, referring to love, this is the love chapter, love does not dishonor others. It, do, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. This is the last part, so I'll say this. It keeps no record of wrongs. Oh my goodness, if you have a spouse in the house and you want to really preach at them, whenever they're coming at you, like, do you have any idea how much I do for you? Do you have any idea what I did for you? Do you do, uh, that what I what I go through on a daily basis to care for you, to, to go above and beyond? He just said, love keeps no record of wrong. Love, love doesn't hold up anything against each other. You know, so if you're really a godly spouse, you know, I, I wouldn't bring that up. You know, we love to use that against it. It's true. It really is true. But but it, it, it's funny how uh, like we do stuff like that all the time. It's it's ingrained in us how we love to just keep records specifically of wrongs that have been perpetrated against us i mean there are there are sociological and psychological studies of how we as human beings love to become and place ourselves in a victim mentality the world is out to get me everybody else is wrong i'm right Sometimes, to be fair, I'm sure that there are some good, mature people in the house that, that are willing to admit their faults. But I'm just here to break it to you. Three quarters of the time, I'm not that person. And I, I would say the majority of us are not that type of person. And a harsh reality is that when it comes to wrongs that have been perpetrated against us in the past, I think all of us can say we have some legitimate hurt that we can justify as saying, no, no matter what, I have every reason to be so hurt, to be traumatized, to be upset. So I'm not going to argue with that today, but we're going to look at God's word and we're going to look specifically at, at a parable that that really shows us the importance and the necessity Okay, so let's go right now to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read verse 12 and then jump to 14 and 15, which is the very end of the Lord's Prayer. And we're going we're gonna to have one more week on this that has to do with temptation. That's going to be the next week, the last week. But verse 12 says this in Matthew chapter 6. And forgive us our debts. Look at this. As we also have forgiven our debtors. I don't pay that all the time. I don't, but God forgive me for my sins. Then I move on. Verse 14 expounds upon this. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. Oh my goodness. That just absolutely shattered so much of what I'm sure we held and understood about grace and forgiveness and unmerited favor. But let me give you some assurance. This is not intended to be a, a theological hard stance on salvation and justification. It, it looks like, and it is, but we've got to be very careful the way we read through it. In other words, if, if you were to die today and there was just like something like, oh man, I should have forgiven my, 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 my friend because, you know, that 
you know, they, they, they never paid me back when we placed that bet on that sports game. And I was mad at them, and I should have just forgiven them. You're not going to go to hell if you didn't forgive that, okay? That's not what we're talking about. And we're, we're going to get into that. But let me just point out a few things before we go to a story. Um, and, and the first point that I want to make is this. In order for us to receive forgiveness, we need to be willing to show it. Okay, let, let, let me break that down for you a little bit. I, I specifically said the word receive. I did not say earn. I did not say deserve. This is all about a posture. Here's why. Just because God freely gives it doesn't mean you're in a position that's ready to receive it. The phrase that was used in verses 14 and specifically 15, excuse me, no, 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, the, the, the terminology in Greek that is used there for sin is very specifically intended to carry the idea of an extreme offense that would hurt an intentional person, something that, that was a line that was crossed that everybody knows shouldn't have been crossed but they crossed it, and man, it was wrong. It was degrading. It was hurtful. That's the idea of what Jesus is saying. We need to forgive. And so if God is willing to forgive us for lines that we've crossed, we need to be willing to do likewise. And that, that's really really what I want us to unpack this morning. Now, I want to share a parable. It's jumping ahead in the book of Matthew to Matthew chapter 18. It's a parable about this servant that owed a great debt to a lord, a king, his master that he had pretty much take, he'd taken a loan out. And we're going to get into that. But before we read that, I want you to understand the context that immediately precedes this parable in Matthew chapter 18. It's a great scripture, one that we really don't talk about a lot in the church, but I think many of us know it. Uh, before this parable in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is instructing believers on how to deal with sin in the church amongst fellow believers. And he says and spells out clearly this guideline that men and women of God are to follow if I got a brother or sister that sins. He says, okay, go to them. Present it to them, but go with witnesses. And if they don't receive it the first time, come with more witnesses and say, hey, listen, there are multiple brothers and sisters in Christ that are concerned that the way you are living is not God's plan for your life. You are living contrary to his plan, and we love you, therefore we're going to say this to you privately. Now that, that's important there. And then it says, finally, the last step, if that brother or sister still will not receive correction answer this in the church a whole lot then you bring them before the congregation then it becomes public Ooh, ooh! i hope none of us are ever in that position in this church today please don't make me do that please i'm begging you be righteous in the lord's sight it says you gotta publicly call them out because they are not listening to multiple private loving corrections from brothers and sisters 
And, and, and this is Jesus' standard that he sets because he goes, there's going to be sin. Can I get an amen? This is not a perfect house. There's going to be sin, and we need to be open to correction, all of us, no matter how it comes, when it comes. We need to be open to it. That means God's working, and he loves us, and there's growth in the body, okay? But then in Matthew chapter 18, something really interesting happens. Peter comes to Jesus, and he asks him a very specific question that Jesus then goes to explain through a parable. And that's where we're going to start. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. And it says this, then, immediately after Jesus gave this teaching about how to address sin in the church, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who, underline this, sins against Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Okay, so, so what I love about this picture right here is Peter, if you didn't realize it or not, immediately made this about himself. It was very personal because he's like, okay, Jesus, great teaching. I, I hear what you're saying about how we are, especially if you're in a position of leadership and you see two believers squabbling and one of them is obviously sinning. It's like, okay, let, let me be the middleman and do God's will. And I will go and I will be the mediator and I will say, okay, what's going on? Yeah, okay, that's obviously a sin. You know, I stand in agreement with this brother or sister who's coming against. All right, that's great. But what happens when the sin's perpetrated against me? What happens when I'm deeply hurt? really easy to be able to to give a little bit of direction to individuals when you're outside of the situation it's really easy to give advice when it doesn't hurt you and peter goes all right jesus that's great but what if it happens to me you know here, here's what here's what i'll say I, I i think i think i know the answer I, i'll forgive a person up to seven times now let me break this down for you just a little bit for for the moment first and foremost uh uh it was a rabbinic view in the time that if you were a part of the Jewish culture, the rabbis would teach you in Sunday school growing up specifically, hey, how many times should I forgive someone who transgresses, sins against me? What's the right amount? How far is enough to say, God, I'm good. I gave them enough chances. I'm moving on. They don't get my forgiveness anymore. And it was culturally taught three times. If you went a fourth time, you don't have to do that. You are under no obligation before the Lord to do that. There's no biblical evidence for that whatsoever. It was just a cultural practice that was picked up. Peter, being the good Jewish boy that he was, but now being a follower of Jesus and saw how gracious and compassionate and merciful and above and beyond that Jesus would go in his ministry as another Jew, said, Jesus, I got it. When someone sins against me, I'm going to forgive them seven times. I'm going to more than double the required quota that I have to forgive others who sin against me. Jesus, you got to be pleased with that, right? And, and I can't help but think of, of trying to get into Peter's mind. I'm sure he thought he was doing exactly what Jesus wanted him to do. If you jump to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, way back to the Sermon on the Mount, this is even before the Lord's Prayer, which is also part of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus clearly instructs his disciples in this way. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness, look, surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, 
you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Peter took this very literally, and it should be taken literally. But what Peter didn't realize at the time was that literally, you can never do this. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, as corrupt as they are, they still are probably much more disciplined than the average, uh, than the normal, regular Joe, than the layman, and they follow the law really well. Paul himself says, I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. My righteousness far exceeded anybody else's according to the law. But what Jesus is saying here is, yep, you got to be even better than they are. I tell you the truth, if a man even looks at another woman with lust in his heart, he has committed adultery. It's like, well, I guess, I guess there's no hope for me. Uh, I, I guess I'm in trouble. But again, that's not what Jesus is really getting at. He's getting at, yes, there's a standard of righteousness that none of you can fulfill, that I will fulfill, that you need to embrace and you need to live in. But Peter didn't fully recognize that at the moment. And I can imagine he's thinking, Jesus said, I got to surpass that of the right, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So you know what I'm going to do? They teach us that we are to forgive three times. I'm going to go seven. He's going to be proud of that. He's going to say, yeah, he's been listening to my teaching. Well, as much as this shows us that Peter was listening and he was learning, this, however, teaches us that Peter thought forgiveness should have been shown in moderation. How many of you here can say that at one point in your life, maybe even now, you're struggling to forgive because there is someone that has offended you so deeply, so frequently, so harshly? Obviously, there's got to be a limit to the forgiveness that that person deserves. Because if I pull out my scoreboard and they see clearly how much they have done to wrong me, they don't deserve it. But let me make this point to you. Trying to measure the extent of what is forgivable, listen to me, is assuming a moral position you have no right to occupy. Trying to measure the extent of how much forgiveness someone is worthy to receive from me, saying, I'll forgive you, but only up until this point, is assuming a righteous, godly, one-person position that you have no ability and no right to occupy. Only God has that right. That's a bold statement, and I know that's a bold statement for some of you here who have been so hurt, so abused, so angry, so offended. I am not making light of your offenses. In fact, I need you to hold on to those right now, because at the end, I pray that you give account. Jesus goes on with his parable when he says, Peter, listen, not seven, but 77 times. He's not being literal to, to keep track of seven times. Seven. He's saying because seven numbers were big in Jewish culture, seven was really a number of completion. He's saying not, not seven, but seven times, seven times, seven. It, it's infinite. It never ends. And he goes on and he says, let, let me explain to you what I mean. Matthew 18, starting in verse 23, says this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, 
a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay the master, uh, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, his servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me. He begged, and I will pay back everything. Every last cent that I owe, I'll pay it back. The servant's master took pity on him. Canceled the debt and let him go. So let, let me just break down a few things that are going on in this parable. First and foremost, it is so important that whenever we look at parables, we don't get too caught up in trying to identify so many theological attributes of God. Because th there are aspects of this parable that are meant to be very literal of a human being and how he would react within his right to demand repayment in whatever form and and we might be tempted to try to oh but i don't think god would do that but the parable says it the, the whole point of this parable is to focus on forgiveness that's it okay so don't try to go too far with that and th that's a good biblical interpretive tool for you to take when you read your bible every time you come against a parable don't try to come up with a ton of different theological truths about it you, you'll dig yourself in a ditch that you might be like well wait a minute i don't like this god that i'm seeing in scripture careful okay the money. Specifically, it says in this interpretation, the, the 10,000 bags of gold or the talents of gold in some of your interpretation. Um, this was comprised specifically of a gold denarii. A denarii or a denarius uh, was a day's worth of wages if it was silver. This was gold. So we don't know exactly with inflation and all that, but it was worth definitely more than one day's wages. He had 10,000 worth of golden denarii that he was indebted to this lender, this king, for. Uh, some in commentators try to study the, the, you know, that the heritage, the sociological studies of the ancient Near Eastern world in this time in Antioch and Palestine and, and say it was probably maybe $10 million. Others say it's like $100 million. The point is what Jesus is getting at is saying in this day and age, it was a nearly infinite amount of money that this man borrowed. For whatever reason, he might have been a farmer, uh, but he borrowed this money, and listen, an amount he could never pay back. He could never pay it back. He was given more than he deserved. He squandered it. He could never pay it back. And again, let me just help you understand. Uh, some of your scriptures, your Bibles might say that this man was a slave. Again, it's important to understand the idea of servitude that ancient practice that was worldwide. It wasn't slavery in America like we had it. It was literally like you're paying off a debt, you know, and you were treated very well and fair, but the Bible uses that's why Paul says, I'm a bond servant or a slave. You know, we can get really jumbled in our interpretation of scripture when we put it through the lens of atrocities that happened in America. That's not the ancient Near Eastern understanding of a servant or a slave. There's a second side note that I need you to be aware of. Um, but what I really want to focus on for this brief moment is Notice the request of the master, this servant who owed this insurmountable debt. He says specifically, take the debt from his hands. And he, he begs the king. He begs the one to whom he is indebted to. And he says, master, if you just give me time, I'll pay it all back. He couldn't. It says specifically, the master took pity on him. 
love this because this is just like what we learned about last week. God sees us in our need. He sees the certainties, the intricacies with such clarity beyond that which we can even know. This guy was like, I don't know how I'll do it, but I'll come up with it. And the master's like, who are you kidding? You're never going to be able to pay that back. But he doesn't hold it against him, even though he has every right to, because it was his money in the first place. By law, he was entitled to reclaiming by taking his family, his children, and putting them in servitude for beyond the rest of their lives. That wouldn't have even been enough to pay this off. But it says he took pity on him. And you want to know what's amazing? He didn't say, I'll give you more. He didn't say, I'll I'll lessen what you owe by a percentage. But he canceled the debt. He wiped the slate clean. And that was free. He didn't deserve it. He did nothing to earn it. The king just gave it to him. Okay, all right, so so here's the point. The first thing this parable teaches us about God's forgiveness is that it's more than we deserve. The forgiveness of God, it's so basic, but it's something you must never forget. God's forgiveness is something we don't deserve. We had, there was a price that we were required to pay in a moral standing before our righteous, perfect creator. And God looked at us unrighteous and worthless and said, I'm not holding that against you. For God, remember, we deserve punishment. We deserve wrath. So if you're in this place and you ever get it in your mind, because we all do this, we all do this. And I'm sure you, you might do this, and that's okay. Uh, you might be thinking like, man, life is so hard, and I've been so faithful to the Lord, I deserve You might not even use that word, but you're thinking it and you're feeling it. Like, I just need a break. God, come on. What's going on? I deserve this. Be reminded what you actually deserve from the Lord is wrath because of sin that we are all in contempt of hell. Instead, we got grace. Jesus goes on in the parable. And he now shares what happens The minute this servant is forgiven this incredible debt, how does he go and how does he respond to this incredible grace that was given him, which he didn't deserve? But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. He refused grace. He refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. How is he going to pay that debt when he's in prison? How is he going to pay that debt when he's in prison? Can we just be real? 
When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant and you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. You begged me to. You got on this altar and you cried out to God. You cried out to me and you said, God, I know I don't deserve this, but I desperately need you to forgive me that which I cannot exonerate myself. You wicked servant. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how Jesus now finishes the parable and he's clear. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The second thing this parable teaches us about God's forgiveness is that it's meant to be reciprocated, not abused. Notice how the first servant had the opportunity to provide the same forgiveness for nearly the same exact situation. So, so the same situation is that money was owed, a debt was owed that was borrowed, and you have another servant who responds exactly the same way as that servant did to the master. Got down, begged, and said, if, if you'll just give me time, I'll pay it back. I'll do it. Now, the only difference, and it's a significant difference, is that the debt that this servant owed to the other servant who had been forgiven an insurmountable money that he could never pay back is that what that servant owed was pennies compared to what this man owed. Now, don't get me wrong, it was a lot of money. It was roughly, again, what commentators surmise was about three months worth of wages. Like that, that's a good amount of money that I'd like to have paid back if I lent that out. But it was nothing compared to what he owed. And that's the major difference in this, in this situation. Listen to me, the man wanted justice. This servant wanted justice for himself. He goes, I have a right to what is mine, what is owed me. I want justice. It would have held up in a court of law, too. This wasn't anything wrong for the day. He wanted justice. But listen to me. He wasn't ready to live under the same standard. He was a hypocrite because he so quickly forgot, hey, I'm holding this individual to a standard that the king didn't hold me to. And my debt was way greater than theirs. Now, I said we have to be careful with how we develop our theology based on this parable. And when you read that last phrase, I'm going to read it for you one more time. Uh, it specifically said in verse 35, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. You want to know what this sounds like from an initial reading salvation by works? It does, right? It's like, oh, wait, I'm not going to be forgiven unless I do. But that you, you, you got to really dig deep and read between the lines of what Jesus is saying here. L let me give it to you this way. It's not up on the screen, but listen. The king originally delivered this man from prison, but this man, the wicked servant, put himself back in. He did it. Listen, unforgiveness is a self-made prison. 
We live in a society that keeps a scoreboard of how we have been wronged. And we use that to justify why or why not someone is worthy of the forgiveness that we have the ability to show. The forgiveness of the debts that we have the ability to enact. But we don't realize that that's a lie from the enemy. That unforgiveness that we think is empowering us is imprisoning us. It's poisoning us. It's killing us. But we think I'm better off if I hold that against the individual because it'll make me stronger. It'll fuel my hatred. And they, this is what we always finish with. No matter what, I'm telling you it happens subconsciously. They don't deserve it. Hold it against you even more. They don't deserve my grace. They don't deserve my forgiveness. You're right. Neither did you. Neither did you. You did not deserve the grace that God perpetually shows you. We don't deserve what God has given us. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I got to wait. I got to get to my point. And then I'll talk about it. So Jesus uses this parable to show Peter how wrong Peter's self-perceived righteousness was. Peter, I'm not even trying to blame the guy. He's like, hey, I'm going, I'm, I'm doing double beyond my quota. I'm going to forgive him seven times. That's got to be enough, right, God? Mm-mm. It's not enough. And Jesus shows him through this parable, your self-perceived righteousness, like Paul says, it's filthy rags. It's nothing. It doesn't work. Jesus shows Peter that we are all the first servant who owed an impossible debt. If you are overwhelmed thinking about the pain and the trauma that was perpetrated against you in your past or maybe your present, I am not belittling it. I'm not making light of it. I am hoping that you will be liberated from it. Listen, listen, but you need to understand where do you fall in this story? Who am I in this parable? Peter, yeah, <laughs> but thinking about the servants, I, I'm the second servant. I'm the one who asked for forgiveness, and I didn't get it. I'm the king. I'm the one who's always dishing out forgiveness. It's not what you're supposed to walk away with. It's what Jesus didn't want us to walk away with. He says, listen, yeah, you might show forgiveness. Yeah, your grace is great, but understand your position in the greater scheme of eternity. Before God, we are always the wicked servant that God loves. And he says, I exonerate you. I forgive your debt. I don't hold it against you. But when you do likewise, those are the famous words of Jesus. Go and do likewise. So listen, when we refuse to exercise forgiveness and we demand that we remain in a state of unforgiveness, never be able to pay this debt back so i want you to always know it and and i want you to grovel before me and i want you to feel the pain that you showed me it's only when we listen to me listen to me it's only when we practice forgiveness that we realize the debt we're owed will never compare to the debt you owe god 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 20 say this. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. 
There are many of us, I'm sure all of us, have or are saying, I know Jesus. I love him. I'm grateful for what he's done for me. And you spout good theology. And, and it really does. It, it moves you emotionally. But then when it comes time to now be salt and light, when it comes time to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to administer the same grace that was administered to you by another human being, I'm sure. Mm-mm. Can't do that. First John just said, we love because he first loved us. We forgive because he first forgave us. Listen to me. If you refuse to forgive even the greatest of debts, you don't know God. That is a hard truth to accept. But it's the truth. You might know about him. You might read about him. You might come to church. But if you're here and you have held on to generational curses, you have held on to pains that have been enacted against you when you were a child or maybe yesterday, maybe a month ago. And I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, but this is a evil, fallen, broken world. And even the best of people will offend us. They will sin against us. They will owe us a debt that they're never going to be able to repay, no matter how much penance they give. And if you are an individual that says, no, I love God, but I can't ever forgive them. They don't deserve it. Neither do you. Neither do you. I don't say that lightly. Please don't. Please don't think that I'm here trying to just cram something down you that you would just forcibly accept. You've got to receive this. You've got to grapple with this. You've got to give it to the Lord. You've got to say, God, this hurts. And and I know it's going to hurt. It's not going to be like, oh, yeah, that feels so good giving that up. Oh, thank you, Jesus. It will eventually. But in the moment, you're going to be mad. But listen to me. It is a self-made prison. It is also a stronghold that you have allowed to be built up in your life that the enemy hides behind. And you're wondering, God, why don't I hear you? Why don't I see you? Why don't I experience you? Why don't I feel you in my life? How come my marriage is not growing even though we're doing everything that we should on paper? You still are holding on to things that God says, there's no room for that in my kingdom when I reside in you. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse five. This chapter speaking about love. It says love. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Peter was self-seeking in this moment. I might have been so angry, but who knows the, the trauma that Peter was feeling in this moment when he asked this question. He's like, Jesus, great teaching and all. But. You know what Judas said to me last week? I mean, I don't know. You know what he did? That I saw him do. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. If you're holding on to that trauma, it immediately fills you with rage and anger. It's one thing to be angry about that righteous indignation, but that you, you can't allow that to ruminate. You give it up. Say, God, vengeance is yours. You will repay. You take care of the sinner in the midst. I'm obedient to you. I forgive them because I recognize that as evil as they are, I'm just like them before you. And we are all children of God. Good teach. No record. 
drawing. Jesus, seven times enough, there's got to be a limit to the forgiveness that I will exercise. There is no limit. Now, I, I would be, it would be problematic for me still not to tell you this doesn't mean that you aren't to speak. Jesus says to be as soft as doves, but as shrewd as serpents. And he literally says the world actually does good in this regard. Be shrewd. I am not saying that forgiveness means that you go to the individual that perpetrated the offense against you and you just welcome back with open arms. You say, yeah, come into my life. Let's go back to the way things were, baby. I want you to do exactly. I, I want our lives to go back to the way that we were. I'll forget about that. I forgive you. I move on. That's not wise. That's not what Jesus is saying. There are always going to be consequences. And so this is not a message to say, open yourself up, avail yourselves, and be foolish. This is a message to do the exact opposite, which is even harder. To say, I am so mad at you, and you have hurt me so deeply. But I got to do what Jesus says to me. He forgave me. I didn't deserve it. What I want to do in this time, I want to ask Pastor Chase to come up and and we're gonna have we're gonna have a, a time of reflection just for these few moments, and then we're gonna go celebrate. If you can stay for some food afterwards, celebrate Brother Kelvin's retirement. Um, but what what I want us to do is to 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 understand that Jesus taught us to adopt a habit of prayer. We come we we bring it back to the Lord's prayer, and this whole thing was his disciples saying, "How do we pray? We want to be good followers of you." How do we pray? And Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer, something that's more of a blueprint, not an exact, you have to do this, but it's covering the big things. And then we fill in the blanks with the minute details. Why would Jesus say, this then is how you should pray regularly, daily, habitually, and he adds in, forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven our debtors. If the grace of God perpetually covers us, why do I need to keep repenting? Because that's the first part of it. Why do I need to keep repenting? When I repent, it's not that it is the key or the answer for me to be exonerated. Jesus did that. When I prayerfully repent before the Lord, I am being reminded of my position before the Lord. That's why the Bible says, humble yourselves before the Lord under his mighty hand, and he will lift you up in due time. We constantly say, Lord, I need you. God's like, I know you need me. We're not telling him anything he doesn't know. God, I sinned. You think I don't see that? I see that. You need to see it. You need to speak it. You need to give it to the Lord. And it's very practical here. He goes, the minute you give that up, remember, don't hold a double standard. Otherwise, you are going to abuse the forgiveness that I have shown you. If you love me, remember, I loved you first. Now follow my ways. So I think what we need to do in this moment is twofold. I want to invite you to stand on your feet. Because I, I just, if we can, I don't want us to be in, in too much of a lackadaisical. We've been sitting for a while and we're getting hungry and we're getting tired. But I want us to be so laser focused in this moment. 
I want you, you've probably been thinking throughout this sermon up until this point of people that maybe you've wronged. Maybe you're the perpetrator. Maybe you're the one that is hoping that a person will forgive you. Repent. Give it to the Lord. Verbally or internally, but I would encourage you, speak it with your mouth. Speak it out. Don't be afraid to speak it out. Say, God, forgive me for the wrong that I committed against, first and foremost, you. Because as David said, against you and you alone have I sinned. But I've also sinned against others. And Lord, give me the the courage. Give me the, the, the strength to go and to own up and to now do what you've called me to do. But I really believe that there are a lot of us in this place that have individuals in our, in our minds that we don't want to forgive. Because you are filled with so much anger. You are filled with hatred right now in this place. You are locked in a prison that you have built with your own two hands. It's time to give it up. Let the Lord just take care of you. Let him break it down. Let him renew you. Let him set you free in this moment. Remember, to know God is to know the extent of his forgiveness. And the only way to know, truly know his forgiveness, his love, is 